Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Callum. And welcome to another episode of 1001 A Film Policy. This week we'll be continuing our top three segment with movies that we think should or could have won Best Picture, but for whatever reason did not. We'll do our best to avoid vilifying any of the actual winners, but do expect some considerable bias. We'll also be continuing our quest to determine the greatest movie of all time. This week we've watched the 1976 satire classic Network, a movie in which a veteran news anchor is put out to pasture and subsequently announces he will commit suicide on live TV. We'll talk about the many career-defining performances, prophetic themes and technical brilliance that makes this movie a must-watch. So my number three um, is Goodfellas. So it was nominated the same year as Dances with Wolves and Lost, unfortunately. This argument is going to be very one-sided, mainly because I'd regard Goodfellas as one of my favourite films of all time. Um, I've watched it at least half a dozen times since the first time and quite easily stick it on now and enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, Yeah, the very first time I watched it, yeah. So that's one side of the argument. So that's what you're up against. Um, (laughs) So I'll go into a bit more depth than that uh, about that in a moment. But it's also one side because I've never seen Dances with Wolves. Um, I know very little, if anything, about that film. I've based all of my opinion on that movie on the fact that Kevin Costner, um, I just can't imagine him being a patch on Robert De Niro, I'm afraid. Uh, Especially in 1990, when not only did it pick Goodfellas to Best Picture, but also Awakenings, um, which is another De Niro classic. Um, have you seen Awakenings? I have, yeah. Um, yeah, with Robert Williams as well. At your request, I watched that, actually. Very good film. Um, and very opposite as well. So if you imagine him in Goodfellas and imagine him in Awakenings. Yeah. Those he, two characters, very different Yeah, they're men. very different. They'd never meet, and he's playing both of them. I know, it's bizarre. Um, I know I can't judge uh, Dances with Wolves um, too much because I've not seen it, but I do, uh, and I continue to do so. Goodfellas doesn't need much of an introduction. It seems to be one of those films that most people who are into films uh, would call a must-watch. It's definitely a future episode for us, um, I imagine. However, it's a Scorsese mobster movie uh, based on the book Wise Guys, which was written about a notorious gangster turned informant. It does feature some five-star performances from uh, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Lorraine Bracco and Ray Liotta. uh, And I believe it definitely deserved the Best Picture Award, despite how well Costner may have danced with his wolves. Um, I have no idea what it's about, but... It's a bit like... Um, is it about Native Americans and no, during it's, like the it's Civil War? It's basically know. Saturday Night Fever, but replace all the people with wolves, I think. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. The first time I watched it, though, it was on DVD, and you had to turn, you had to swap the DVD halfway through. Oh, that was weird having to do that. I don't yeah. know films that did that. I think Attack of the Clones did it, too. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, what was... Why? What, what was all that about? It just couldn't hold enough... <laughs> Data on the on the disc, yeah. Well, my number three is quite appropriate, really, because um, it's Twelve Angry Men, um, which go. is also directed by someone we're going to be talking about later. But amazingly, this film did not win any of the awards it was nominated for, um, and I think it was beaten by Bridge on the River Kwai in every category it was nominated for. I've not seen Bridge on the River Kwai since I was very young, and I don't I don't think I actually watched all of it then, so I barely remember it. So. I won't lambast it or anything like that because it is due a watch, really. Um, But I'll say that 12 Angry Men is just great. It takes a seemingly simple and potentially boring plot and somehow makes it um, interesting, really. Um, It's just about 12 men in a room trying to 
decide on um, a case, basically, for this young man who's um, convicted of, I believe it's murder. Um, and lots of things come into play, like they always do with Sydney LeMay, like race and all that, and class and all that sort of thing. I'm sure we'll get into sort of performances later in Network, but he must have a way with actors because everyone in this film are uh, on top of their game and, and genuinely one of the most claustrophobic, tense films I've ever seen. And, and, you know, obviously, as I said, it has a lot to say about society, which you know, seems to be a bit of a theme of what he does with his films, really. Yeah, I've also done a little extra thing where I've mentioned some films I would have put in to be nominated as well. So I've included what I think should have been included, which is The Seventh Seal, which is that one by Ingmar Bergman, you know, the guy playing chess with death on the beach. Oh, yeah. Seen that. Yeah, I know what you mean. And then uh, Paths of Glory, which is a pretty good film by Stanley Kubrick, which I would have included, which somehow neither of them were nominated at all. From the same year? From the same year, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um yeah, that is mad. But I've heard Bridge Over the River Choir is one of them, isn't it? Your dad talks about and says yeah, that it's a dad film, definitely. Yeah, my my number two then is the um, well, I had one or three choices. Well, one or two choices here because one of them did win. Um, but I went for The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, um, in two thousand and one. It lost to A Beautiful Mind. Um, so I've got another one sided argument, I'm afraid, but. Perhaps not as ignorant because I have seen both of the films. Yeah. Um, so A Beautiful Mind is actually a solid movie. Um, it ticks all the boxes for a film that would usually win an Academy Award. Um, it's basically about a real-life mathematician and Nobel Prize winner John Nash and his struggle with paranoid schizophrenia. I remember it being a very moving film, uh, definitely deserving of a uh, of the critical acclaim it received. Um, I did actually like it so much that I bought it in a three for ten pound deal at HMV. Oh, there we go. Um, which, yeah, I had plenty of. Um, <laughs> however, in a year where arguably the most ambitious trilogy of all time kicks off, um, I struggled to comprehend the decisions that were made. I'm currently rereading The Fellowship of the Ring, so perhaps I have got a bit of recency bias. Um, but I would argue that this is the most enjoyable uh, film in the trilogy. Um, I'd agree. Yeah, I, th- I just think it's the most watchable. I just like at the start when they're in the Shire. We all do, Jake. I, th- I could watch three films of them just sort of living day to day in the Shire. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> uh, I know obviously Return of the King was the one that won all the awards, etc. And I do love that one as well. Um, but I think that it won so many of those awards um, because maybe the Academy was trying to redeem some of their guilt um, for not rewarding it to the two previous films. I do think though, perhaps The Fellowship as a standalone movie didn't have the same effect it had once the trilogy was complete. Um that's the only thing I could think of, really. Because could you imagine, obviously, I know a lot of people have read the books, they knew what was going to happen after it, but if you were just a movie viewer, like you hadn't read the books and you went to see Fellowship of the Ring and you didn't know what was going to happen, you might have watched it and maybe it probably doesn't have the same effect as if you watch them all as a trilogy, I'm not sure. That's the only thing I could think of. Maybe they watched it and went, it's a bit of a cliffhanger. Well, that's what people felt for years after that cartoon one came out in the 70s. They're like, what the hell? That just yeah. ended. They ran out of budget and just went, <laughs> yeah. and they destroyed the ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's the end. I think they were at Helm's Deep. They missed the whole third book, I think. I remember I, I was too young to see The Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers in the cinema. Um, but I do remember going to see Return of the King um, in The View in Cheshire Oaks. There's that scene, isn't there, where... Smeagol's turning into Gollum. Oh God, yeah, and he looks awful. Um, and I remember yeah. just looking down, <laughs> down the the empty row of seats that I was on for the whole film, thinking he was just going to crawl out oh, from under no. a chair. That, um, that, 
point where he's like sort of three quarters of the way through to becoming Gollum. That's, yeah, so it's just yeah. like his forehead's just like popping out. Yeah, that's horrible. That used to scare me as well. But we've just, it, we've it discussed doing um, a Lord of the Rings episode, haven't we, where we watch all three. I'd love that. Um, and talk about them, but we would have to be around a time. And we've got some time got off. plenty of time off, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my number two is quite similar to your number one, really. Um, it's Taxi Driver. How do you know what my number one is? I mean, your first one you mentioned. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is probably my most controversial take. Not that Taxi Driver should have won, but that Rocky is a film I was underwhelmed by when I first watched it. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get hate. I think. Um, so for it to win best film and best director is is pretty mad to me. And Martin Scorsese wasn't even nominated for directing for Taxi Driver. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Um, but I, I do always worry about sounding like a bit of a, a film bro, is that what they're called? I don't know what the kids say these days. Incel. Incel. Talk, <laughs> talking about Taxi Driver, but I, do, I don't care. I do like it. I'd say it's in my top 10 films of all time, really. Yeah. I'd, yeah. I've got a poster film. of it. You saying Scorsese wasn't nominated for Best Director or whatever, but I think maybe when this film came out, people weren't really ready for it. No, I think, wasn't it like his third or fourth film and the, the first three didn't well Mean Streets was his breakout wasn't it and then before then it wasn't Mean Streets speaking of films that underwhelmed you I need to rewatch that I was about 15 when I watched it <laughs> yeah, so was I actually so. <laughs> so I was probably just bored and wanted to watch Superbad or something but yeah anyway when, when I talk about Doctor I do worry about it but um, you know there's not much to say really that hasn't been said I'll just say I, I do love an anti-hero and Travis Bickle might be the, the best one like the prototype for all yeah, anti-heroes definitely. really and we wouldn't have like the majority of TV shows, I would say today, like Sopranos and Breaking Bad and stuff, if it weren't for him. And it's interesting to see Paul Schrader's career now, who's the writer, because he basically puts Travis Bickle in the majority of his films because he calls him like God's lonely men, the characters, the main characters. Yeah, I've stuff. heard that before. Um, so he's pretty much lived on for decades, this character, through Paul Schrader's writing and films. But um, but yeah, that's, that's my um, pick. Taxi Driver should have beat Rocky, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree. Yeah. Why don't you like Rocky? I think I watched it too late in life. I think I'd had so much anticipation for it to be really good. Like everyone said, Rocky's brilliant. Oh, you love Rocky. It's the best sports film ever. Like, All right, I'll give it a go. I'm, I'm excited to watch it. And then I watched that and Raging Bull on the same day. And I think I, I preferred Raging Bull. Yeah, honestly, that's the big That's probably the issue, really. I probably yeah. watched Raging Bull on the same day. I watched Raging Bull on a very sunny summer's day at the age of 16. Um, <laughs> Lovely. I probably just wanted to go and sit in the garden. But yeah. uh, I watched it and I remember thinking, hmm, it's all right. Um, but I, at the same sort of time, loved Rocky. Um, yeah. So perhaps it's, yeah, perhaps it's one of them I need to watch it again. But um, no, I, I I like Rocky. I've not seen it for, for quite a while. Um, yeah. But it's quite a simplest. It's quite a simple film. It's a great American film in terms of um, it's an underdog story and um, American dream. Oh, yeah, the American dream sort of thing. Yeah, and all yeah, that yeah, stuff. yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. So it is one of those. So it's it's quite tongue in cheek, and there's a lot of things in it now that probably <laughs> wouldn't be in. Um, that sort yeah. of film. I think he's quite aggressive towards age, isn't he? I don't know. I built it up too much, really, and I watched it like literally last year. That was the first time I'd ever seen it. I think. Yeah. So I think if know, they'd I, left I, it I as a stand, it. if they'd left it as a standalone film, then yeah, I, I don't know if if people maybe have a different perception of it. And maybe say, yeah, no, it is a really good film, but because it became a franchise and there's so many spin-offs and yeah stuff like that, and it just seems like people say that Rocky Three is the best one, though. That's what I've heard. Rocky Three is the one. It's a good one. Um, the first four are, are pretty good, and then 
the fifth one is they like removed it from the timeline. I think like they just ignore that it happened. Um, All right. <laughs> pretty much. Um, I think the the he wasn't even a, f- a boxer in it really. He was like a street fighter against some fella called Tommy Gunn. Oh god. Um, yeah, it was naff. Because Rocky, I didn't expect it to be a drama. I think it was just like a. I didn't. I thought it was going to be. But focused on boxing more. Maybe that's where I was. And now I know what it's about. I'll rewatch it. And uh... yeah, well, the thing is, as well, I think with uh, Sylvester Stallone, sorry, people weren't familiar with him because that was like his first thing, wasn't it? He'd, he'd written yeah. it, and people were like, "Oh, this 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 guy plays this, this boxer so well. Like he's he's even got like he plays off like an old injury with his lip, sort of thing." Um, like obviously, not realizing that he actually did have like a paralyzed lip. So I think if people were familiar with Sylvester Stallone before that film, they probably wouldn't have thought he was as good in it. But I think people thought that the way he spoke and yeah, it was a proper method. Actually. They thought he was like yeah, like he got, or, got into the character, genuine boxer, and he seemed like a rundown old boxer. But no, that's just how he speaks, and isn't every single thing he's been in since then. Yeah, well, the fact I like about Rocky is that he sold his dog to make it, and then he bought the dog back once he'd made the money. Yeah. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot uh, about that. But um, I'll do my little little segment at the end. The films I would have put in as nominations as well, which weren't that famous at the time. Well, one of them wasn't very famous. It's called Mikey and Nicky. I don't know if you've ever heard of that film. No. You'd probably like that. Um, and then Carrie. Carrie wasn't nominated oh. for anything. It might be nominated for like acting, but it wasn't nominated as best picture. Yeah, so my number one then, um, Callum. What? I'm sorry. What? I know we've agreed not to mention him, oh. but I have to. No. My number one is the Elephant Man from 1980, uh, which lost to Ordinary People. So, sorry, that's pretty ironic, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. The Elephant Man <laughs> to me is. Is hands down the movie that has probably had the most effect in me in life. <laughs> it's genuinely, in life. in life, yeah, genuinely, wow. it's it's changed the way I perceive the world, um, and I I hope it it made me a better person after watching it. Wow. <laughs> genuinely, I it that film, yeah. Anyway, but I put off watching it for many many years due to hearing how That's unforgiving it. and brutally upsetting the film is. Yeah. Uh, but I gave in about six months ago and. Not a day has passed where I've not thought about poor old, poor old John or or, or Joseph, shall I say? But yeah, so I'm still yet to give um, give in to Kess. Um, I'm not sure I can ever watch Kess actually. Um, to complete the Carl Pilkington yeah, duo, <laughs> but especially at the minute because we've had a, a Kestrel been visiting our garden recently. Oh Jesus um, Christ! Yeah, so, don't watch it. Wait for that to leave. Yeah, but anyway, um, the Elephant Man lost ordinary people, which I've not seen, but I know it's about a guy who struggles with the guilt of losing his brother, and ends up in a psychiatric hospital after attempting to take his own life. Um, yeah. So it does sound like a heavy watch in itself, really. However, like I said, no other film has stuck with me in the way that the Elephant Man has, and I can't get it out of my head. But I also I can't get my head around the fact that it wasn't the best movie of that year. Um, if you get what I mean. Like yeah. I, th- I think it's one of the best movies I've seen. So, how could it yeah. not be the best movie of that year? And to be honest, I hear more people talking about Elephant Man than Ordinary People. I do, I do want to watch Ordinary People though. It does look good, but yeah, as you said, it looks depressing that one. But so surely not as depressing as Elephant Man, or is no, probably it's, it's well, people can put, use it, don't they? Like, as the measuring stick of depressing films. Um, 
I hear the elephant man mentioned quite a lot. It's just survived all these years, isn't it? People talking about, I don't know, it just comes up a lot for some reason. I see the elephant man a lot, just in films my, and My TV dreams, and my nightmares. In the corner my... of my room at night. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> it's okay, John. Every time I close my eyes, I just think about him, just wanting well, to be loved. But yeah, if anyone hasn't seen the elephant man, um, I'd, I'd say watch it on your own. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Don't yeah. yeah, don't watch it in front of everyone. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a compl- it's a very different viewing experience. I bald, you bald. Very different to all of David Lynch's other films, really. Sort of. There's still aspects of it, but you've seen Mulholland Drive now and that's the usual standard basically. So Yeah. And uh, I've I've looked in a little bit to sort of into David Lynch and yes, yeah, he's a very strange man, but he's obviously got <laughs> he's obviously got a heart. Mr. Trees, don't Worry about me, my friend. I am happy every hour of the day. My life is full. Could I know that I am loved? Again to myself. I could not say that were it not for you 2018 i think um green book one didn't it yeah um i don't think that was correct i think black clansman or roma should have won i'll just uh say this i'm not alone in my confusion regarding green book winning um a lot of people obviously mention all the white savior stuff and all the black characters just changing the white characters for the best and all that i think that's a valid argument but um also i just think it's a basic film in my opinion you mentioned a film earlier but just being a standard film and i think that's what that was really uh greenback i think it's just it should be just an under the radar film to watch with your mum on a sunday really <laughs> that's how i describe greenback but yeah i put i put black clansman ahead of it really in terms of how much i enjoyed it anyway personally um because it's up there as one of my favorite spike lee films and his direction is always good um, and you know I like Adam Driver as well. So, yeah. um, but that the ending with Black Klansman really has stuck with me. I'm not sure. Have you seen Black Klansman? Yeah, yeah. So that ending because I watched it in the cinema and everyone went was like laughing all the way through, and then the ending happened. You're like, Jesus, this is pretty mental. Similar with Roma, which I weirdly watched with one of my friends, and it's not the best choice of <laughs> film for two men to watch together. Really, I don't um, know Roma. I've not seen or heard of it. Oh right, it's basically quite a sad story about this housekeeper who sort of becomes a surrogate sort of not mum but like part of the family for this mexican rich mexican family and then all sorts of horrible things happen to her um so me and my me and Liam were just sat in the room just <laughs> silences but i had to hide my tears anyway but i think roma did win best foreign language film and best director um which is appropriate but i think parasite won both best picture and best um, foreign language films. Yeah, so I does. don't see why Roma couldn't as well. But anyway, those two films are technically and narratively superior to to Green Book, in my opinion. Anyway, um, but yeah, that's that's, what, that's all I got to say. I'm not going to go in too hard on Green Book because you know I know you like it, but it's just not for me, basically. Well, I don't love it. I don't think it's well. It's been a while since I watched it, but and I don't necessarily think that it should have won Best Picture. But I think yeah. it gets all. I don't know, a lot of hate and there probably is a lot of political stuff around it, but um, I'm too dim to know about it. Um, me, me too, to be honest. But, <laughs> but from, I remember watching the film and enjoying the film and thinking, 
yeah, this is a good film. And when it won Best Picture, I was like, okay, that's fine. Like, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have a problem with it at the time. And when I watched Black Klansman, I enjoyed that too. I remember, I remember yeah, I, I'm not arguing that it, it should have been, that should have been over Green Book or whichever. I think they're just both good films. Um, and you'll know me, I like films about unlikely friendships. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that was one of them. Um, and it was a year where Linda Cardellini was in everything. Yeah, she's pop. Yeah, she does always pop up as like the wife, <laughs> yeah, the wife of in some of wife yeah. of main character. <laughs> yeah, wife of Italian man. There was also loads of films released that year that weren't even nominated. I'll just go through them all: Hereditary, Climax, Isle of Dogs, Annihilation, Beautiful Boy, Eighth Grade, Burning, Shoplifters, The House That Jack Built, Mandy, Sorry to Bother You, Into the Spider Verse, Leave No Trace, Mind in the Gap. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give you Hereditary. I I I, I would have <laughs> happily had that as best picture over it. Um, yeah. The house that Jack built, definitely not that film. Have you seen that? Me and Chelsea watched it one night, like two oh, years ago. God, you've been scarred. Boy. Yeah, when you shooting those shooting people the across the fields, yeah. <laughs> shooting the damn kids. <laughs> shooting the kids. <laughs> I was like, stop shooting the kids. <laughs> it was mental. I props him up in his freezer. In yeah, his, in his, in his like his big meat locker Room. sort of thing. Yeah, isn't it? big meat locker. That's it. Yeah. But I like I liked it, but you know me. Yeah, you're weird. Howard Beale is a news anger who has become disillusioned with the state of television news. In a moment of frustration, Beale delivers an impromptu on-air rant, declaring that he will commit suicide live on television. However, instead of firing Beale, the network sees an opportunity to exploit his outburst for ratings. Diana Christensen, a programming executive, gives him his own show where he continues to vent his frustrations and voices controversial opinions. She seeks to exploit Beale's rantings for her own career advancement, leading to a clash between the pursuit of profit and journalistic integrity. Network. So, Cal, your initial reaction to this film, have you seen this film before? No, I've never seen it before last week when I watched it. Um, I've heard about it a lot, and obviously I've seen that one big scene that everyone talks about and know the line for some reason that's just been ingrained into my life, but I'd never seen it before this week. Do you know why I think you... Of maybe how, why that's ingrained in your mind. Do you Go remember on. on YouTube they had the the greatest acting of all time videos? Oh yeah, it was in one of them. Yeah, <laughs> I that's probably why. The I watch that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've watched it a lot. Um, but yeah, I think the Howard Beale mad as hell scene was in that. Oh right, fair enough. Yeah, I, without any about. context, I used to be so confused. I used to because all you can see is him with his jacket with his coat on. And yeah, there's a clock in the background. I don't know why. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know what was I, going on. I, I was no like, isn't he meant? To, it, yeah. Isn't he meant to be a news reader? I was thinking, but he'd look how he's dressed. I was yeah. very confused. Well, I'd seen this film before, um, but not for a long, long time. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I was torn last week between Serbico and Network, both Sydney Lemay films. But yeah, um, I'm glad I went with Network. Um, I very much enjoyed the rewatch of it. Um, there's a lot that I think went over my head. Right. When I first watched it, because it, it's got to be about 10 years since I first watched it. Initial thoughts on it is, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I liked it as well. I'm glad I finally watched it. It's been one of my watches for years. So, and I've heard a lot of people say, oh, this is one of the best written 
films you'll ever see, really. For, yeah, for it's, it's, well. and I, I agree with that definitely. It's in like it's usually cited as like in the top ten sort of screenplays of all time. With Back to the Future, I'm I'm assuming because and Chinatown, yeah, Chinatown's the other one. Yeah, another film they done away, isn't it? Chinatown. Yeah. Um, another thing for me about this film is the the cast list for it. Apart from Robert Duvall, I've not seen any of the other actors in anything, so they're all quite unfamiliar to me. I was very impressed with, I said to you, that almost every person in the film has possibly the best performance they've maybe had. Well, I know that a lot of people refer to these films when they talk about these actors as, as like one of their first ones, or that they'd go to, especially Peter Finch anyway. Yeah, um, and I know definitely. he's sort of an older actor and he's got quite a lot under his belt, but considering this is the second to last film, this is usually the one that people talk about. Yeah, definitely. I, I've heard of Ned Beatty. Um, I know he's obviously... Um, Lotso. He's Lotso Hugging Bear, and he's yeah. also in Deliverance, and we won't mention what happens to him in that film. Um, but yeah, he's in that. Um, and Faden Away. I know that she cocked up the Oscars <laughs> with uh, Warren Beatty. She was the lady that said um, La La Land instead of Moonlight. Oh, uh, was it Fade in a way? That was it? Fade in a way, yes. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, and she was she was Bonnie, wasn't she? Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> Bonnie Lass. She was Bonnie. <laughs> she was a Bonnie Lass. <laughs> she was. She um, Bonnie. And she's Mummy Dearest as well. I've never seen that film, but I want to watch that. <laughs> she's Bonnie Mummy Dearest. <laughs> This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. All right, so I'll just go with my first takeaway from the film, really, was Peter Finch and his performance, really. Um, I think he is obviously a key performance in the film, and I think he was the glue that held it together, really, for me. Um, personally, I tend to be drawn to characters who have had enough of the world they're living in and take some form of action. So like, you know, Lester Burnham in American Beauty, William Foster in Falling Down and Peter yeah. Gibbons in, in Office Space, who was hypnotised about not caring his job. But Howard Beale, who he plays, who Peter Finch plays, is, has felt the decline in use for several years since his wife died and now obviously lives alone, doesn't he? And is dependent mm-hmm. on, on alcohol. And so there's no hypnosis needed for him. But there is some sort of higher power with him, isn't there? He believes like he's being guided by some higher god or something, yeah, or supernatural being, so he gets called a mad prophet, doesn't he? And then is exploited as, as that, really. Yes. So you can imagine if you're a news anchor, obviously, to be on TV, you've got to be pretty good at your job. So I imagine yeah. he probably thinks he's a very good news anchor, um, and then one day he just realises that to the to the network that he's on, he's as disposable as anyone sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I do feel for him um, very early on in this film. You know um, what? I'm going to make a stupid comparison here, but he's like Pat from the Alan Partridge movie. Yeah, don't, yeah, just that Pat. <laughs> Genuinely, yeah, no, I saw that as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. But obviously, Peter Finch became the first person to win a, a posthumous Best Actor Oscar, didn't he? And yeah. looking at the other nominees, it was a tough year. But I think, other than Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle, I think he was the standout performance. Yeah, definitely. Of the year out of any other film, really. Yeah, when Heath Ledger won it, people said that. Yeah, he was good, but did he just win it because he died? And no. I don't think so at all. But I can imagine people might have had this argument at the time with uh, Pete Finch, but again, I don't agree. I think that it was a ridiculously good, well-acted role um, and suited him to a T. Um, and the fact that he's got a thick Australian accent behind um, him in this film, you don't hear any of it come out, really. 
No, yeah, and I think wasn't he? He was desperate to win the role of Howard, wasn't he? So he even offered to pay for his own sort of airfare yeah, to travel. New York for, for it. But I think Sidney LeMay was worried about the Australian accent, but then when he heard him, he was like, "All oh, right, that's that's fine. You're really yeah. <laughs> you're really good at the American." Which it's weird because Americans struggle with British accents or any other accents, but for some reason, non-Americans are really can we can just do American because we. I think we talked about this before. We just grown up with it, haven't we? We probably watch more American TV than we have British TV, really. Yeah. Um, Whereas it's not the same in America. They definitely don't watch more British TV than American. But certainly with Australia, unless they watch Home and Away on repeat. In Canada, they watch um, British children's shows, you know. Um, they watch like Postman Pat and stuff. Did they <laughs> found really? that out, I found that out from an interview cool. with Mac DeMarco. He told, he told me about that. <laughs> Mac DeMarco watched Postman Pat. Yeah, when he was a child. <laughs> Fireman yeah. Sam. That's dead like that. funny. Pretty weird, isn't um, it? I didn't know that. Um, um, well, that's great. Another trope I enjoy in movies is like the transformation of a character and their descent into madness. And I'm sure many actors were inspired by the transformation of him in this film. Cause yeah. he, uh, I'd say including Brian Cranston as Walter White, who actually played Howard Beale on stage. Did you know that? No, he's I didn't. actually, he's played him in a theater production. Oh, so, right. Around the time of breaking bad too. So he must've been like, cause he goes for a transformation, but I think it's very good. how he shifts from one to the other in this film. Yeah, I agree. Um, the only thing I'll say though, is obviously when he's first on TV and he says that I'm going to, kill myself next week whatever um, yeah. and then he comes off and um, he's he's friends with Max Schumacher isn't he uh, yeah. and they're sat in his office and, and they're sort of telling stories and laughing about it and then the fella comes in and says you're a hit sort of thing they want you back on the TV Howard and stuff like that Yeah, and he's sat there just sort of normal again but you think he's sort of he's he's not yet snapped is he He's, I think no, he's he- encouraged to snap in a way isn't he it's sort of yeah, like the tip of the iceberg at that point, and you can see it maybe sort of lingering. Right? Yeah, and then yeah, they've definitely. But he's still himself him. at that point. Yeah, definitely. Um, but then later on in the film, he's literally sort of when he's going to meet um, Arthur Jensen later on in the film. Yeah, and he's like walking up the stairs, like preaching this, that, and the other. I think oh, yeah, it's a turning point, isn't it, where he where he has a dream and he sees the face of God and yeah, when he's sweating in bed at night, yeah, that's all of it. That's I think maybe life. that's the turning point, isn't it, between him? I don't know, not a, not a midlife crisis, and more than that, maybe a nervous breakdown, and then becoming the the mad prophet, as he's described. Howard, I'm taking you off the air. I think you're having a breakdown. Require treatment. This is not a psychotic episode. This is a cleansing moment of clarity. I know a few people were considered for this role. So, like, there's like loads of people, like Henry Fonda, Paul Newman, Cary Grant, James Stewart, weirdly, which yeah, I think is true. I think he turned it down because of the swearing, didn't he? Yeah, um, he yeah, didn't I've want seen that. so much. <laughs> but um, I don't know if it would have been half as successful if it if it wasn't for Finchy. I don't know. If, would Would Peter Finch have been a household name at the time? I don't, I don't think, think he, would he was, have been, really, no. to be honest. They, all the ones I read out were, definitely, but I think that would have taken away from it. They would have gone, oh, that's just Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. And he would have been like, I'm mad as hell! Yeah. <laughs> I was, I'm not going to take it anymore! <laughs> um, well, I read somewhere that apart from uh, Howard Beale, everybody else that they cast was like their first choice. I think, I think obviously, Peter Finch's performance is helped by the fact that some of the greatest monologues ever written are in, in this script. But I think his delivery of them are what make them sort of stand the test of time, really. Well, do you know, obviously a lot of people uh, give Quentin Tarantino, rightfully give him a lot of credit for, and, and Scorsese, they give him for like their, their dialogue between characters and stuff like that. Like, 
basically people talk about Pulp Fiction. Ninety five percent of that film is just people start talking. Yeah. Um, but it's still one of the most exciting films you can watch. I think Sidney Lumet. I know he didn't write the screenplay for this, but his films have a lot of that. In, in it yeah, too. it makes it makes talking interesting. Doesn't yeah, it, it makes it interesting because I can imagine that another director might have made this film. I mean, the dialogue itself would have been good anyway, but I don't know. It's just the way he directs it and, and puts, like you say, contains it. Um, yeah. it still makes it very exciting. Like I was completely gripped by this film. Um, yeah. I didn't know what was going on a lot of the time. Like there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. sort of things going on and they're talking about uh, TV like ratings and stuff like that. And Dodgy using, deals. And all yeah, that. and using yeah. all this sort of uh, jargon. Yeah, and I didn't have a clue what was going on, but apparently they were advised saying, oh, you need to change the wording for, for a few of these things. Like people don't know what, what these figures are and stuff like that. And he was like, well, that's fine because it's it's accurate. People don't know. The average show won't know what these things mean, which is absolutely fine because they, it, that's if we changed it to appease them, then it's less realistic, isn't it? So I, I really like Sidney Lumet. I, I think he's a top, top, top guy. It's a peculiar movie. Everybody keeps saying, oh, God, what a brilliant satire. And Patty and I we keep saying, what satire? It's sheer reportage. Uh... Yeah, and even so, I think he's even underrated, really when you think about it, because yes. he's not mentioned alongside Martin Scorsese or Francis Ford Coppola or, you know, people like Brian De Palma, people like that really, often. Um, but he has made, he's had four really good films. It's possible It's possible that they weren't as commercially successful as, because you'd say that maybe uh, Francis Ford uh, Coppola, his three big films was like Apocalypse Now and the Godfather films, which were all ridiculously um, popular, but he didn't maybe have as many good films as say Martin Scorsese. But then, as as many sort of huge films he does have, he also has a lot of films like King of Comedy, Street. Mean Streets that weren't as commercially successful, but are all still good films. Um, and maybe suddenly Lemay sort of caught in the middle of that. He doesn't have enough good films that maybe weren't as commercially successful, but he also doesn't have any sort of films that were ridiculously commercially successful. If you maybe Twelve Angry Men's maybe the only one. But the yeah. other three I wouldn't say No, they've grown as, as films. Definitely Dog Day Afternoon. I, I see that everywhere that people are saying it's one of the best films ever made now. Yeah. Um and I agree, I do like I need to rewatch that because it is really good. Yeah, it's a brilliant film. I remember watch I chain watch that if you can chain watch a film. I know. <laughs> yeah. You I, love Al. What yeah, can you say? I do love Al. Well he's not as commercially successful. Um and maybe he didn't have as many like he only like I say, you only made those four films. So say if he'd made ten films of a sort of similar level to that, then he'd have more of a cult following maybe. He but, did the whiz with uh, Michael Jackson. Exactly. That's weird. That's I don't know he did point. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My my general sort of taking of this film, because like I say, a lot of the performances in this film, I think everybody was pretty standout. But I think that was sort of to do with, um, was it Paddy Shayevsky? Yeah. Like, they didn't change any of the, they didn't do any ad-libbing or anything like that at all. What was written down was what they said, um, which you'd think would be quite constricting for an actor. But apparently, according to the actors, it's not because they can familiarise themselves with it. So they've got absolute complete freedom with their character, although 
the words weren't changed at all, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So they had to stick to, to the lines, but they could... They could convey the character in any way they yeah, wanted to. the way they performed. They were given complete yeah. freedom. You know, Aaron Sorkin, he wrote Social Network and all them. I think he said that Paddy Chayefsky and his script for, for Network in particular have been a major inspiration for him. And he said that no one, not even George Orwell, has been as right as Chayefsky was when he wrote Network about the future. As you mentioned, he's quite prophetic, isn't he? Yeah. As a, as a writer, it's pretty mad what's happened since since this film was released. He's a modern-day Nost, uh, Nostra, uh, Nostradamus, that's the one. He is. It took me three times, but I got there. Nosferatu, I thought you were going to say. I, I nearly like, did. Modern day Nostradamus. Yeah, it was obviously long before Big Brother and reality TV and stuff. But the the the, the show itself that Howard hosts in this film is very reminiscent of those exploitative shows that still exist today. Um, and it shows the transformation of the new show into like a spectacle. And I can't help but think of the certain news channels that exist today that also do this. But I think, was it Roger Ebert said back in 2000 that he was amazed that Chayefsky somehow predicted the rise of Howard Stern, Jerry Springer, and even the World Wrestling Federation, Jake? Yeah, I've uh, read that as well. <laughs> yeah, which is true. Um, but I'd say Howard Beale himself is a sensationalist character, and you don't have to look too far in reality now to find people who are treated in a similar way, really. So like, you know, like Andrew Tate. Katie Hopkins, Piers Morgan, people like that who just say the most bizarre out there things to get sort of likes and views and attention, really. But obviously the difference is Howard doesn't know, you know, he thinks what he's saying. But I don't know if it is much of a difference. Are they delusional like him? Well, <laughs> who's think, to say? Well, they know don't what... Don't get too political. <laughs> they know what gets likes clicks. And, and clicks and click, yeah. Yeah, clickbait, don't they? Um, they know the sort of taglines that are going to be the headline the next day sort of thing yeah. whereas Howard Beale was saying it from his Meaning heart it. sort of thing wasn't he yeah, he, he, yeah it was how he perceived things and how he said things he, he didn't care who listened um he just wanted to rant yeah. whereas people now obviously like you say just sort of manipulate it say to get popularity and things. likes yeah. and money but the thing is yeah. though is that there are people that are vulnerable on tv now and being exploited look at um Jeremy Kyle for crying out loud. Yeah, that's the I people think, yeah. he's had on those shows to just to poke fun at them. And I know. We're yeah. giving them TV time and they're thinking it's their 15 minutes of fame, but we're only there to laugh at them and poke fun at them. It's like a circus, really. I think that's what Roger Ebert mentioned, didn't he, about Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer's like the earliest one to do that. And Howard Stern does it a lot on his radio show. Yeah, but... The Victorian's freak show never disappeared. Diana Christensen in this, Faye Dunaway's uh, character, she wants to create a show that's sort of it's it's crime and but like live crime like real crime yeah, that's a precursor to like live leak and like the internet i'd say um all that stuff because that's what people there's some people who s- seek out that type of like yes. yeah, videos do. and it's all over twitter i've seen tw- twitter pages with called like insane videos is like the name of the Twitter page and then you just click through and it's just literally people shooting each other and you're like Jesus how's this happen and stuff. yeah um, not for Horrible. me thank you no thank you sort it out Elon get rid of them yeah Jesus. I think it's hard to, hard for us to talk about this film um, because it's it's not satire to our generation because it's all true. It's all too familiar, isn't it? Really, yeah. Um, it's it, it sold as a comedy, isn't it? But I don't remember laughing that much. Yeah, I, just, I, it. I was like, but, there's one scene where I laughed. <laughs> can you imagine how absurd this must have felt at the time? And like, this never happened, sort of thing. But it's it's just everyday life for us now. Like, it's I know 
it's mad. It's ridiculous. It, I'd like to have, to have watched it at the time. It being in that world and I mean, yeah, I'll compare it to watching it now, but unfortunately, we'll never be able to. Why is it that a woman always thinks that the most savage thing she can say to a man is to impugn his coxmanship? Well, I'm sorry I impugned your coxmanship. I gave up comparing genitals back in the schoolyard. Faye Dunaway and William Holden. So one, one dynamic I appreciated about this film is their relationship, really, and that it sort of makes up the other part of the, the main plot, doesn't it? Their, yeah. their relationship, sort of. Um, Diana is obviously a cold, calculating workaholic who stops at nothing to achieve her goals, and her dedication to the character's ruthless determination is evident throughout the film. In the making of Network Blu-ray documentary, Feature out. I think Lou May recalls his first meeting with Faye Dunray about taking on the character of Diana and says that if she tried to sneak in any form of vulnerability, he'd cut it out and just leave it in the cutting room, basically. So she had to remain sort of cold all the way yeah. through. Um, but I think there is there is that sex scene, isn't there, obviously, where I've seen this type of thing in, in happen in loads of films and TV shows where she just can't stop talking about work yeah. whilst they're trying to... Trying to get in the mood, really. Um, and her own jargon seems to be getting her more in the mood than the actual, than Max himself, sadly. <laughs> yeah. So um, I thought that was the funny scene I was thinking of. That, that scene made me laugh. I think it's, their relationship is quite clever because the whole time they tell us what is happening in the relationship. They sort of say it in, in terms of if it's like a, a TV show, don't they? They say like yeah. act, act one and act two and all that sort of stuff. And we're sort of watching it thinking, oh, he's left his wife. And he says, and I'll come back to you in the end sort of thing. Yeah. And he does. And yeah. we've, we've, yeah. he's told us that that's going to happen, but we still haven't seen it coming, if you know what I mean. It's sort of like Chayefsky. Yeah. He's he's telling us what he's going to do later on in the film, but we're still watching it thinking, How's not knowing how it's going to end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But he's told us, he's, he's fooled us, he's tricked us. Um, there's also, I was having a look as well before this, did you read the name uh, Christine Chubbuck? Um, yes, I know. She about was her. the news presenter that yeah. did. Um, she was the first person to commit suicide on live television, um, and she heavily influenced this film. So, obviously, the idea of her committing suicide on TV—you can see the sort of comparison between that and this film, with obviously Howard saying that's what he was going to do. Yeah, but I don't see it mentioned anywhere. But I can imagine that Faye Dunaway's character is based on her. Because I was reading up on this Christine Shubuck and they were saying that the reason she she had suicidal tendencies and depressions is because she found it difficult to form relationships with people because she was so sort of work-orientated. And obviously there's a lot of that going on with Diana Christensen, isn't there? Like she yeah. is all work-orientated. She, what does uh, Max say? She's a, devoid of all sort of joy in her life. Um, so I think <laughs> maybe that... I don't know why there's not more connections between Christine Shubuck and Diana Christensen, but I definitely think that was maybe in there a little bit. I think Sidney LeMay's de- denied that that had any inspiration, but it could have ins- inspired um, older uh, Pally. It could be a coincidence. But she is like an amalgamation of Howard Beale and uh, Diana Christensen, isn't she, yeah. Christine, when you read up into her? So, yeah, that's pretty yeah, pretty interesting. I, I'm interested in that, Christine. Um, there's a film there's about it. There's a film called, yeah, called Christine, I think it is. With Rebecca Hall, I think. Um, yeah. I do want to watch that. And I think there's a documentary as well. Creeps me out, things like that. Yeah. It sort of goes uh, back to what you said before, though, about people with, what do you call it, Live Leak or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you sort of have a morbid fascination, don't they? Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly what it is. It's... 
yeah, a morbid fascination. I'm not necessarily oh. into that sort of thing, but no. sometimes it does pique my interest hearing stuff like that. Like, not necessarily hearing the live audios of it. I'm not going to talk about the, oh, oh God. the Germantown Massacre. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, people definitely are into that sort of stuff, aren't they? And I don't think yeah. they enjoy it because they're enjoying what they're hearing. I think it's just the fascination of sort of darkest sort of shadow of humanity if you know what i mean with max then he is sort of a completely different mindset towards the industry doesn't he he's more yeah. or less the only man who objects to his friend being exploited on national television which i think creates a tense atmosphere whenever diana and max share a scene really and you also find yourself sort of rooting for him in a way despite yeah. the fact he's cheating on his wife but he seems to be the moral compass of the film but at the same time yeah. he's being completely immoral so, <laughs> so I had a very like love-hate relationship with Max Schumacher um, yeah. I thought he was the, the friendly old fella sort of thing in the film and he's the, I think he's the comic relief a lot of the time but then when he, he leaves his wife and there's that scene uh, with Beatrice Strait which we'll get into because that is a, a very what yeah. she would have not Oscar for it for she was in it for like five minutes was she or something like that yeah it's, it's, um, yeah, it's like one of the shortest and it's a very powerful scene and, and you sort of side with her then and that's what I mean by a love-hate relationship like I liked them all the way in that film up until that point and even though he's being straight up with her because these things do happen like you are married to someone for so long but people do fall in love with other people and stuff like that and at least he's not going behind her back cheating on it well I think he does a little bit but um, he's then straight up with her isn't he and says like yeah. this that and the other he says it to her straight he's not leading her on Um but still, it's a, it's a scummy thing to do, isn't it? It's for life, mate. Yeah. Wife for life. Yeah, wife for life. But then later it's on, like obviously. Yeah, so you vote, yeah. I don't know what to make of him. I do like him, but yeah, he did scum her over a bit, didn't he? He did. But I think if it wasn't for these two sort of actors, I would be a lot less interested in the plot outside of the Howard Beale segment. So I think they're, they're good as, as, a, as a duo, really. Yeah. It goes off Howard Beale a little bit, the film. I think the first sort of half of it is all about him, and the second half of it is more about them two really what did you think of Frank Hackett then Robert Duvall's character I thought he was he was good he was very shouty I will say that about him Um, he he just shouts it's one of the big points in all the negative reviews is that there's quite a lot of shouting yeah Um, and he is the main culprit that's been sort of (laughs) but he's just an angry guy and I've never seen him act this angry in any film to be honest he's always usually the voice of reason well in Godfather I'm just basing on Godfather but he's sort of like the voice of reason in that isn't he really and it's yeah. just quite a you know weird to see him being so authoritative and shouting yeah I think that's the environment though isn't it I think I don't know I've never been in the TV sort of world but that in- yeah. that environment is sort of portrayed like people are very shouty <laughs> quite yeah. short with each other and demanding so maybe it's this is realism maybe this is what it is like i don't know i've never been in that world i watched an interview yeah. with robert duvall when he watched the scene where he fires max schumacher um yeah and what does he say oh, i can't remember what it is now he's just about a big tid um oh yeah yeah that made me laugh as well that line <laughs> yeah i can't remember what it is now but exactly but i'll put it in i'll pop it in yeah um <laughs> Um, but he's saying that when he's when he was playing this character or when he's playing any character he only stays within himself he only stays he never overacts he only so if he's angry he'll only get as angry as he he gets angry himself oh right so he bases it on how he so he bases it on himself so yeah he might be it might to us seem like he's overacting but for all we know this is how Robert Duvall shouts his kids at home sort of thing (laughs) yeah definitely yeah (laughs) Um, yeah God bless him. Yeah. Hope he, they're okay. There's a there's a scene that as well and 
he just he he reminds me so much of Robert De Niro in this film a little bit. Yeah, he does me as well. I was thinking that, like, yeah, I don't know why I was thinking of the Untouchables. Anyway. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. He seems a bit like Robert De Niro. In Untouchables. Yeah, Al Capone, yeah, <laughs> bizarre. Um, but no, I think he's quite good in this. He's he's not a lovable character in the slightest, but he's he's a yeah. very harsh character. But it's. Yeah, he's got to be. He has to be. I got a hit, Schumacher, and Ruddy doesn't count anymore. He was hoping I'd follow my face with his Beal show, but I didn't. It's a big, fat, big, pitted hit, and I don't have to waffle around with Ruddy anymore. If he wants to take me up before the CCA board, let him. My favourite scene in this film was the the, the Ned Beatty uh, scene yeah. where he plays Arthur Jensen. He was like the, the very head of, is it UBS, is it, the network? Yeah, yeah. Um, and basically, Howard Beale's gone a little bit too far. Um, he's gone on the mad rant about the Saudi Arabians buying the network, and um, we need to stop them before they take over and this sort of thing. Uh, so he gets taken to see Ned Beatty, um, and you don't really know why. Um, yeah. But he goes in there. And he's a bit like a super villain. He sits at one end of the table while Howard Beale's at the other end of the table. Um, turns all the lights off in there. It's pitch black. You can only see his face by. He draws um, the curtains, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, you can see like a little glimpse of his face. And he just goes on a mad tirade of of basically telling him that the world isn't countries and people. It's about business. It resonates as much today as it probably did then. Like You look at things yeah. like Amazon and uh, Tesla, and those things are bigger than countries. They probably have more power than most countries, really, don't they? If you think well, about the influence they have over people in the world. Yeah, um, like Twitter is where most people get their news from, really, including me, unfortunately. That's what it's I mean. It's just the first thing I look at to see what's going on in the world. So um, definitely got a hold on us. Yeah, and he was nominated again for his best supporting actor for this. He didn't win it, which I don't know what he, he did that year, so I can't, I'm not going to say too much. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, I think I've watched this about eight times this week, and I genuinely can't think of another five minutes of someone literally just stood there talking or shouting yeah. or whatever that I think is, is better in film. But there's my favourite one is um, when he says that you've meddled in the primal forces of nature and you will atone. <laughs> yeah. And then he just, and then he's like, he's just sort of grown. He's like huge in the room. Yeah. Like he shadows over that. him. And then he just drops again and goes, am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? <laughs> yeah, he's good. I like that. And yeah, I just he's... think it's brilliant. Like, I just think he's great. And then he gets close to... To um, Howard Beale, and he and he wants him to be the voice for his message, um, yeah. much like God was in his dream before, wants him to be his voice. And he says, "Yes, but why me?" Jensen says the same to him as God in his dream has said, and he says, "Because you're on television, dummy. Yeah. Fifty million people watch you every night." Um, yeah. And then obviously he says, "I've seen the face of God." And then Jensen replies, "You just might be right, Mister Beale, um, because to himself he probably is God in his world. He is God." Yeah, if you definitely. think about it, he's probably got the same amount of power yeah, over over the people as as I don't know a god would have over people. But no, I just think that scene is yeah, I think it's brilliant. And as you said, it's literally he's on screen for five minutes, isn't he? So yeah, I can't think of of anyone who's had such an impact on a film with such little screen time. Maybe Marlon Brando at the end of Apocalypse Now or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe um, that's the yeah, maybe that's the other one. They're very comparable, I think those two. Yeah. Or even uh, Peter Dinklage in Elf comes in. <laughs> yeah. uh, you look at Howard Bill in that scene, and he's absolutely doesn't know what to do. No, he's, <laughs> he's just yeah, 
You are an old man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it just completely rips him apart. He's in like the lion's den. Yeah, he's he's sort of proper shrunk into a seat. And he said that he was offered one day's work, and he had a policy that he'll if he'll he never turns down a role, like he'll always do it. Um, Yeah. And he was offered one day's role, and he got an Oscar nomination for it. So yeah, that's pretty mad. He worked a day on it and got an Oscar nomination. Imagine that. Yeah. Day's work, and you go into the Oscars. Beautiful. Good on him. I think that that speech should have gone down in history as much as the Mad as Hell one, really, because that yeah, I didn't know about that one until it came on the screen. I was like, whoa, Jesus! Well, I've seen film four. I don't remember it at all. Um, oh, right. It's definitely <laughs> stuck with me this time. I also thought that Ned Beatty, maybe it's just because he was a large man with a mustache, but he just seemed like the uh, the American version of R- Richard Griffiths. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine him doing this sort of yeah, definitely. Thing. I can imagine him really influencing someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman. I can imagine he watched him and gone, yeah, that's sort of the guy I want to be like yeah. when I'm an actor. Because um, they're similar in a way. Whenever I see Philip Seymour Hoffman films, I think of Ned Beatty for some reason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the films I've seen him in, he's always like um, very much a character actor. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! The, the five minutes she's got on screen, Beatrice Strait, uh, and winning a, a best actress, um, best supporting actress. Sorry, um, that scene. I didn't watch that scene as much, but I remember thinking, like I said to you earlier, that Matt Schumacher. I really liked him up until that point, and considering that his, his Beatrice Strait was on screen for five minutes, she yeah. completely changed my perception of uh, Matt Schumacher that I'd been watching for the last hour and however long. Um, there's a line saying that she, after 30 years, she deserves respect and allegiance or something. And yeah. She turns and looks at him, and I don't know, just that look is it's a piercing look. Um, and I, I felt it like he probably felt it as well. She goes through all the different emotions in what in one scene, like the the five stages of six stages of grief or whatever it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> all in one scene, really. Yeah, she says um, something like, um, "And I'll be damned if I give you up easily." And then the next yeah, sentence, she says, "I want you to move out." Get out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just like. <laughs> All right, Jesus, let you mind. <laughs> but no, it is a really good performance, that. And yeah, wasn't it hers is the briefest performance ever to win an Oscar? I think it was like yeah. five minutes and two seconds. Or something. something like that. And there's um, another bit in it where she says, that. she says, does she love you or something like that? And then yeah. he's saying, and I think she's completely devoid of, of love. Like it's not like a thing that she can feel. Yeah. She's Bugs Bunny generation or whatever. Yeah. Um, she just bases everything from what she's seeing on TV. And you can just day. imagine him saying all this to her and her just thinking, why the hell do you like her then? I think she mostly did like theatre productions as it, as when she was younger. So you can see how that helped her with the role in this for sure. Cause it, yeah. she does sort of command that scene and she knows where to stand for each line. I think they must've rehearsed this one maybe. Yeah. Um, so she, she's, yeah, she's got all the, like the tone of what she's going to say. Absolutely bang on. And then just a bit like, um, uh, Howard Beale's character when Ned Beach, sorry, shouting at him. Um, he doesn't know just what to say, does he? Shrunken, yeah. So there are two scenes where characters just are so powerful, they just leave the other one just lost for words, really. It's in five minutes, it sort of envisions the phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman warned. <laughs> <It does. laughs> yes, it does. Like, yeah, you could just summarize it all with that one yeah. phrase, really. And the winner is. The one is Beatrice Strait and Network. 
So where would you pop that in the uh, the old list then of, of best films? Well, yeah, well we had, films we've watched. We had very differing letterbox ratings. Yes. I, on initial watch, gave it a five stars. One, because of how much I enjoyed it. Two, because I just thought the performances, like there were so many good performances. Like, like there wasn't... If any if anybody in this film had more than two lines, it was a great performance, I thought. Um, and considering there's a lot of stuff that I didn't really understand about this film, I wasn't for a second bored. Like everything was, I thought it was all entertaining from start to finish. Yeah. Um, and I thought my immediate reaction was, that was brilliant. That's a five stars. Over the last few days, I've thought, mm, maybe it was a bit hasty. Maybe it was four and a half. But okay. sometimes I do need to listen to recency bias. Maybe it's the, the immediate effect of a film is what you should go with more than what even. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It, I, I, I can't tell which one you should go with, really. Should you go with the one that, that immediately asked how it made you feel straight away when you watched it? Or should you go with, give it a week and see how you feel about it? Depends on the film, really, because I watched a film maybe. that was pretty slow the other day. And I, when I finished watching it, I thought, that's pretty good. And I gave it four. And then I can't, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I watched it. So I've gone, you know what? That's a five-star film. It's yeah. really stuck with me, that one. But a film like Network, I think it probably works better the other way because it's so explosive and what happens in it is all a bit crazy. You probably should trust your immediate reaction to it, really. Yeah, I think so. And I think it just definitely does depend on the film, though. What did you think, then? I I, I definitely liked it. I, I'd say I'm more positive on the film than negative, really. Um, I was very much, you know... I liked the whole Howard Beale storyline. Faye Dunaway and William Holden were good as well. I like those two storylines. There was a bit of meandering for me, and, you know, I'm pretty rubbish at keeping concentration. There was, the, the script was definitely good, but I'd wish it had kept more to the Howard Beale side of things, in all honesty, because yeah. that was the bit that interested me the most, I'd say. But we, we it's definitely really well made. We didn't even discuss the ending. I thought the ending maybe tarnished it a little bit. It was a bit, like we've said, for nearly every film we watched, it was a bit sudden. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, just came out of nowhere. And you know what? I thought that was Tim Robbins initially in the crowd that shot him, but it <laughs> I looked it up. It looks exactly. If you watch this, look at the guy that shoots at the end. It looks like Tim Robbins. But how would you end this film otherwise? Yeah, that's one thing. How would you end it? Um, I don't think it, it didn't really sit well with me there. Him getting shot at the end. I didn't think it really fit the rest of it. Um, obviously, these these people are because they decide, don't they? Oh, should we kill him? And then they just do it. Like I know these people are. Very work obsessed, but I don't think they're as they're murderous. Um, no, uh, yeah, maybe no, perhaps yeah, they are. I don't so, know. It's so nonchalant. Maybe it just shows how little they care about him, really, doesn't it? And he's well, just the product that they've created. We know Faye Dunaway has no <laughs> human emotion. Um, she has no You can imagine that um, Frank Hackett is probably pretty similar. So maybe they yeah. are. Yeah, maybe it was the most realistic ending. Maybe it was metaphorical. I don't know. Probably there's some sort of thing that's probably gone over our heads there with that one, but I don't know. I, potentially the only other option I could think is that he sort of, well, that's sort of a bit like Joker, isn't it? Really, they've taken that and made it rise up like a rise. Yeah, people put yeah. this with Joker and like King of Com- Comedy and stuff like that. And, yeah, um, like a rebellions created because of his actions and things, isn't it? That's the only other route I think it could have taken. Really, but also they do that a lot with because obviously these films always seem to end in violence. Yeah. I don't know why. It's never a happy ending, is it? Really, with you know my thoughts on it. I I think I gave it a three. Is um, it a three? Yeah. That's a heart. I thought it was three I and gave, a half. Give a little heart. You give it a three. Of... Jesus yeah. Christ. Peter Six Finch deserves more than that. 
he got he was all the three stars for me very much he got they were, those three stars were for him alright well look at our list then where would you put it and then I'll tell you you're wrong I'd probably put it maybe just above Goldfinger fine so, so like we do with most, just put it one below Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, that's what I mean. Unless you want to put it above Mulholland Drive, I don't. No, mind. it's fine. You know, that's I, I was. Of all time. That's fine. No, we'll put it there. Okay, so that makes it the the seventh seventh best film of all time. Please yeah, pick but, your next next week's film. Yeah, so I had a few ideas, really. Um, I did have a film in mind that maybe is the most uncomfortable film I've ever seen, and I was going to pick it just to make you squirm, but then I thought, no, I'll, I'll let you off this time. But <laughs> it's going to be—it's on the list to be picked in the future. If you annoy me, I will pick it in the future, basically. <laughs> I'm and sure then, you'll be picking it then. <laughs> and then I thought maybe I'll pick a pick maybe five films and then do like a random roulette film like a thing like make you pick a number or something. But I can be bothered. So, but then I realised that there was a film that I loved when I first watched it was in the book. I'm not sure if it still is, but it's definitely mentioned on the letterbox list. And I'm interested to see if I still feel the same way about it and would be keen for someone else I know to actually see it as well, because everyone I know hasn't actually seen this. I'm intrigued. I last watched it in my early 20s, so quite a while ago, which is very depressing to say, actually, that my early 20s were, were quite a while ago. Come on, you're and, only 27. I know, but right, it, was, it was when I was like 22 I watched it, and that's five years ago. I was like, that's mad. Yeah. So it was when I was properly properly getting into films really it was one of the ones that i that came up early on i'm not sure if you've heard of it actually it's called uh buffalo 66 you ever heard of that film um no well there you go <laughs> that's the film i'm going with buffalo 66 buffalo 66 right okay it's, it's about. You'll, have a, you'll have a lot of interesting things to find out about the director i'll tell you that much so enjoy that because he's a bit of uh bit of a character that's all i'm gonna say maybe don't look into it before watching it watch the film with a completely clear head not knowing what vincent gallo's like and then maybe look into right okay <laughs> what he's like that's fine um, i'll probably watch the yeah. trailer but that doesn't yeah really yeah a lot of the time does it it's it's one of those films that fit in that category of 90s films that feel like 70s films right i think maybe the most out of any film i've seen really i always think that 90s films obviously i do like the 90s and there's a it's your favourite era, isn't it? Um, yeah, super. The 90s, are, are maybe the most danger of feeling 90, like contained in their decade. I don't know why. It's weird. 90, I know, late 90s and early noughties. Yeah, they've, they, I think we've had this conversation before. Like, if it's a mainstream film, you can really tell when it's from the 90s. Can't yeah, you? definitely. And I think this one isn't, this is like a proper independent film like he budgets it himself i think and he you know it's really sort of sticks and stones really it's not is that a word is that a phrase yeah. <laughs> it's really like bare bare bones and like yeah like a proper indie film really so it doesn't it doesn't feel it feels like as i said from the 70s really more than the 90s the way yeah. it's filmed well i look forward to watching it yeah i'd like to see what you think really yeah. i'd like to talk about it all right we'll do it excellent 